drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome to Drive-by Cinema. We're experiencing unusually high volume of calls at the moment, but your call is important to us. Please stay on the line and your co-host Paul will be with you shortly. Hi Richard and hello everybody. Welcome to Drive-By Cinema episode number quite a lot. Yes, we are experiencing a high number of calls, so you might want to go to our uh, you might want to go to our branch directly actually. Yes, welcome to Drive-By Cinema. Is it 26 Richard or 27? I don't wonder. 26, I think. It's 26. And uh, yeah, I mean it feels like a while since we've been here. I don't know why that is. Things have changed, haven't they? Things Some have people changed. have become paper millionaires by buying game stock stock. Some of us have, yes, yes. Does that is that you? Is that does that include you, Paul? I I, I was I wasn't originally on the Reddit thread. You know, I I came late to the game, but I I I mean, you, these short sellers do have to buy. They're forced to buy to maintain the price. So they don't lose billions, and so I I don't see how they, you know, I don't see how they're ever going to come out on top. So of course you've got to go on 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 the winning side. So yeah, I've I've bought a few, but uh, the. The platform that I'm under, they they restricted to sell only to Bitcoin about three weeks ago when Bitcoin went crazy, and so this this Friday they restricted GameStop as well. You couldn't buy, uh, but I'd already bought on uh, on Thursday, I think. So so yeah. Do you understand why they do those restrictions of what their pretext is for doing that? Because they're protecting the wealth of the one percent. No, that's not actually true. Well, it could be true. Well, it might be true, but more, it's, it, I think it's simpler than that. Mm. Because the stock is volatile, the clearing houses that they place the orders with require them to make sure they have the capital to fulfill the orders that they place. And the volatility of the stock means that they ah. have to front a larger amount. So if they get an awful lot of orders, they're in trouble. They just don't have the liquidity to cover the. I see uh, because the of the variation in the price. Yes. Yes. I see. The, so they just have to stop. They have to stop taking orders, although they're they're putting themselves at great the, risk because it's a volatile price. It has implications for the leverage that they need to. Yeah. That they're limited to, basically. I see. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not a huge conspiracy. No, I think it's just self-defense on the part of those Having said that, returns. you know, you've been looking at the clips on, you know, whatever, Fox News or, or NBC Financial, and there is a lot of defensive talk coming from professionals in the financial industry about, who, you know, these retail investors and whether they should be allowed to essentially short shorts, you know, or, or squeeze shorts. Yeah. Well, yeah. A, a short squeeze is as a trade that hasn't been deemed to be illegal before. I mean, I don't know what your feelings are on short, shorting and longing. I mean, essentially, any trade involves a short position, does it not? There's no morality in it. There's no immorality in shorts no. themselves, is there? You know? No, it's market efficiency, isn't it? What a short is doing is it's saying that these guys think that the price is going to go down. Yeah. And if they've done the homework, it's because they've noticed... Other people agree. Is, well, if they've done the homework, they've looked at the stock and they've looked at the company behind it and... They're seeing that that company, you know, is in trouble. And if its stock might be overpriced, it's good that the, it's good for market efficiency that the price market reflects yeah, the true value. More, more, more to the point, if other people are trying to prop up 
that company because they're invested in it and are objective being shorted. They're the ones behaving immorally, surely, aren't they? If we're going to take That's a right. moral, moral, moral stance on this, you see. So I don't think there's anything immoral per se in terms of shorting. I think there are circumstances where it could be seen as immoral. For example, you know, a country's about to go to war and you perform various shorts that would benefit from that situation. I think, you know, there's a moral, there are moral implications there. Or at the moment we have vaccines and, and medical um, pandemic situations where, where your short positions might influence the safety of the populace as a whole. Of course, they, but these aren't, these are not ref- reflected in the financial instrument itself. That morality would be, that moral judgment would be re- remain the same whether or not finance was involved and whether or not shorting was involved. You see what I'm saying? So I think a lot of people don't fully understand the stock market as well. I, I read someone saying that they brought, GameStop stock because they wanted to support the company. But <laughs> it does not affect day-to-day operations, yeah, you know. Exactly. A, a lot of companies, though, a lot of people seem to put great IPO, store definitely. In, Sorry, initial IPO, yeah. the company gets the money yeah. that you when you buy the stock. But after that, it's changing <laughs> hand between private investors. Unless, of course, there are people in the company who own the stock. But, uh, yeah, the, the company doesn't see any of that money. So buying or selling shares doesn't... And and indeed, the price of a company has no bearing on how well the company is doing necessarily. You would expect that a company that is doing well might have a a good price because people would want to invest in it and it would be a safe investment. But there's no direct correlation between the two and they certainly don't benefit from you buying their stock. So yeah, I think you're right. It's like, you know, moments like this just... They just kind of reveal just how ignorant everybody is about everything really, don't they? You know... It's like, oh God, I, people, I, I've had that about three or four times this week. People, you know, saying that kind of idea that buying stocks from investing in the company, it's like, you know, you're seeding it with capital. You're just not, mm. you see. Yeah. In a sense, you might be in terms of, you know, you might be helping a founder get out while he can uh, by selling his <laughs> stocks. Or in the circumstance where, you know, stocks are split a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth time, like Google has done. Of course, I think at that point, when, you know, when, when they split, then of course you are investing in the company, but that's that's almost like an IPO in itself. It, you know, a big split is almost like an IPO in itself, isn't it? It's like a secondary that's IPO right. in its own sort of way. Yeah, yeah I mean, you might have right, preferential yeah. access to initial to to buy further stock that it might be released. I mean, depends on the nature of the instrument you're buying, but mm. it's, it's economics. It's just all made up, isn't it? That's the problem. So, I, but I, you know, I mean, who cannot have the enjoy the Robin Hood glee? Of, of watching short sellers, institutional short sellers, having to buy the stock they want to short in order to, you know, preserve, preserve value in the stock. It's just delicious. And I think, you know, I think it's worth it if some of us lose our money and lose our shirts just to, just to see those people frightened for a short moment in their lives. You know what I mean? Except, it depends who those funds yes. are. It could it? be the, the Canadian retired teachers fund. I know, yes. yeah. yeah but they're precisely. probably not in hedge funds, are they? They're probably lower risk instruments than that. Precisely. You know, but, but, you know, I mean, I, I'm not, like I said, I don't know there is a moral position in, 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 in any trade and counter trade. You know, if you're buying something from me and I'm selling it, by definition, sell, selling something is a short position, is it not? You know, I mean, every trade involves a long and a short position. So I, I don't want to go down that road of many of the people that are, that are you know, twitching and, and scratching themselves with monkey-like glee this week. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm not looking for vengeance on a whole 
industry. Uh, I don't think... I think you're right. I mean, I don't think there is... We can't necessarily say who these people are, who are the institutional short sellers, and whether what they're doing is pleasant or not pleasant or whatever. But it's just, you know, it's just nice to imagine that some of them have been living very gilded lives and and, and for a short time, you know, they've they've stared death in the face, you know. What's not to like about them? Do it's that thing that, uh, you know, fund managers perform... Worse than index funds that just track the you know top one hundred or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But if you think actively managing your portfolio, you're being clever or smarter than the market. You're probably not. Almost certainly not. Like ninety eight percent of the time, you might get lucky, but it's a gamble, isn't it? And the market is very efficient these days. That's the problem. Well, Unless you've got insider knowledge, you're probably screwed. Well, that's it. Insider knowledge and. But in terms of, you know, can you beat the market average? Well, most managers don't, but are they all good managers and are they all following good management practice would be the first thing to say. No. So what about the ones that we know are good managers that are following good management practice? Do they at times exceed the market performance? And, you know, the term is alpha here, isn't it? Isn't it alpha? Isn't alpha the term, the term that talks about average stock market performance? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I forgot. I don't know. Uh, when I started investing, I learned all these things and I promptly forgot them. All I, all I look at these days is, you know, recent performance and, and P2E ratios and then I just stick my hundreds of hundred pounds that way or this way. But, uh, I've become very lazy, which is good. I think the best thing to do is just leave your stocks alone, basically. Unless, of course, Hold. you bought, unless you bought penny stocks. Hold. Sorry, what were we talking about? Something quite exciting. By the way, I just pull you up on something you mentioned there. You mentioned oh, something about a pandemic? Is that something I've missed? I don't know. I haven't been watching the news. <laughs> I've got overexcited. I forgot what we're talking about, Richard. What were we talking about? Well, I'm going to ask you what the name of the movie is this week. Oh, God. Is it called Get Out? A lot, a lot of laughs. I thought you were just going to say Get Out, and I could do the joke that you always do, where I say, oh, okay, then. And I was going to do a lot of foley about me leaving the, the microphone. And oh, you just use a very clever term there. What's foley? Foley is sound effects for film... TV and radio, you know. Oh, oh, is that a knock at the door? Or, oh, there's someone coming up the street. Crunch, crunch, crunch. I can't, I don't have gravel. <laughs> Coconuts for horses, horses' hooves. Because huh. the interesting thing about Foley is they quite often don't use the real thing because the real thing doesn't sound like enough like the real thing for people to be convinced by it. I see. So what do like, you know, when you see an eagle on screen on, in movies, you get that screeching sound. Mm-hmm. It's a classic kind of Hollywood trope. But eagles don't make that sound. So that's I think that's a red-tailed hawk. Is it? Yeah. yeah. That's something I didn't know before. When there's a fight scene and stuff and people, you know, someone grabs someone's head and they twist it and they break their neck or someone breaks their leg, that's like celery being snapped. Almost, almost invariably, I think. Wow. Not yeah. that I would know how broken legs sound generally. No, it's probably for the best. I wouldn't know how to compare that to the reality, you see. So. But you're right. It is Get Out. That's the movie. 2018, this, this movie. And it's by Jordan Peele. Yeah, famous Jordan Peele. Famous. I, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming everybody knows who he is. Do you? I've got no idea, <laughs> no. It's that kind of thing where you go to a party and, you know, people assume that somebody knows everybody's name and so you never find out what their name is. Well, he does. He used to do uh, like a sketch show. He was in a double act, Key and Peel, 
Obviously, it's on American television. I'm not wow. sure it got syndicated in the United Kingdom, and I've never sought it out because it's it's you know American humor. I mean, I'm not saying it's not funny. I didn't find Seinfeld funny, for instance. Really, Ooh. I never really watched more than a couple. Did of you episodes. find Kelly Monteith funny? That's going back a bit, isn't it? About 1981. I think I did. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. Did saying you find I- Kenny Everett funny? Kenny Everett was British, though. I know, but he imported that style of American humour that some people don't find funny that isn't really gag-based, no, is it? Uh, Kelly yeah, Monteith, I... he copied a lot from. Seinfeld is an inheritor of Kenny, Kenny Everett in many respects. So what do you think? You, do you find American humour as funny as you That kind of American humour, which I'm going to say started with Kelly Monteith. I, I used to love Kelly Monteith as a kid, like as an eight-year-old. I don't know if I understood the humour. I didn't really like Seinfeld. Unless you're a New York intellectual or a, a LA kind of media media person, I think it's quite a confined world, isn't it? Well, that's a big thing to say, suggesting that the majority of America wouldn't even like Seinfeld. Because I don't think that's true, is it? Was it really popular? I think it was really popular, yeah. I don't have the facts to hand, so... I don't know, like, it never really resonated. There's one particular scene where they're talking about double dipping, you know, you're at the buffet bar. Should you or shouldn't you double dip kind of thing. It just didn't really resonate with me in a way that maybe a British humour, you know, talking about double dipping at the buffet bar would do. I don't think we have the same kind of buffets. Maybe Seinfeld just wasn't funny in retrospect. Well, on that note, let's listen for the music. How are we talking about Seinfeld? I don't know. What are we talking about, Richard? What we should be talking about it feels like, is well, it feels like some sort, of, some sort of viva or tripos at the end of university. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like I feel like I've been examined, Rich, on things that you specifically throw in these things at me to see if I know what Seinfeld is. I don't really. I'm afraid you failed your viva. <laughs> Did I feel my viva on knowledge of late eighties American sitcoms? <laughs> But you can tell us all about Get Out. I can because, because it's fresh in my mind. Now, this is in 2018. It is, I believe, a slow burn psychological horror. Is that Would that be fair? With a bit of thriller element to it? It's a horror. Yeah, it's a thriller. No, the very opening scene, the very opening scene is a black guy walking through a posh neighbourhood. You know, tree-lined avenue somewhere. He's very nervous about being there. He feels out of place, I think. He's expressing that. On the phone, he's on the phone to somebody, isn't he, when he's uh, walking down there. A car pulls up, some kind of white sports car, and some guy gets out. I think he's wearing, is he wearing like a knight's helmet? He is wearing a knight's helmet because later in the movie we see that knight's helmet again, I think, in the car. That's right. It's That's a callback, isn't it? And basically this guy gets abducted, bundled into the back of the car and driven away. Then the credits roll, I think. Then we're with a young mixed race couple. With a guy called Daniel? No, uh, Chris, a guy called Chris. and a guy, Played um, by Daniel, I think. Played by Daniel Kal- Kalua, I think. Yeah. And the woman, played by Alison Williams, who looks amazingly like a young Jennifer Connelly, I think. Right, I'll pretend I know who both these people are. Jennifer Connelly, the girl in Labyrinth, the David Bowie movie. With, you don't remember Labyrinth? I do remember Labyrinth, but also there's Never Ending Story and the princess... Mm. The Princess Bride. Bride. And I get confused with the three of them. Right. Never Ending Story is the one with the like the very long dog thing with it that's a dragon, the luck dragon, I think. 
Never uh, Labyrinth is the one with David Bowie as the king of the, the Goblin King. I think. Yeah, Princess. Princess Bride. It's the one where they climb game. a big. They climb a big cliff in Princess Bride. I remember that. Yeah, and there's sword fighting and stuff like that. It's, terrible. it's a whole different, different level of comedy. Princess Bride is terrible. But it's well regarded, Paul. I know it is a cult film. It is a cult film, but it's terrible. No. So, have I seen Labyrinth? Yes. yes have I you have. seen that? Reminds me of the Babe. Oh, Jennifer Connelly. Reminds me of the Babe. Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> Reminds me of the Babe. Jennifer Connelly. You're supposed to say which babe? Which babe? The babe with the power. Jennifer Connelly. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is going on here? What, what dimension have I entered? <laughs> Richard, we're not even in the Twilight Zone. You're freaking me out. Just... <laughs> it's the famous bit in Labyrinth where I they go, it's reminds me of the babe. seven years ago, Richard. What <laughs> reminds me of the babe. Bit? Which babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Oh. Voodoo. You do. Me do. I do voodoo. Woo. So I take it There's Labyrinth has comic moments. Very, it's very funny. It's great. Moments it's of great comic life. levity. The other great thing about Labyrinth, he's got a little Muppet dog called Sir Didymus. I do and, remember that, yes. And he rides on a sheepdog, an old English sheepdog. A dog riding a dog. A dog riding a dog, I know. Is there, does, does a fox's <laughs> head come from, sort of, come from outside the dog's <laughs> mouth and like make a second head inside the mouth? Not, no, not that I remember. They missed no. that, didn't they? They, they, they missed that opportunity, yeah. yeah. But a dog riding a dog. So there's lots of moments of comic... Counterpoint levity in Labyrinth. Thank you for and establishing David that. Bowie. And what the hell has this got to do with Get Out? I just think a lot, a lot of Get the, Out. The, 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 the actor who plays Rose, Alison Williams, yes, has an astonishing likeness Jennifer to Jennifer Connelly, young okay. Jennifer Connelly. If anybody knows who Jennifer Connelly is, which we don't. Well, Jennifer Connelly has been making it big in. A thing that's connected to the podcast, Paul, in the TV series of Snowpiercer, where she's the boss of the train. You look shocked, and the silence speaks volumes. Wow, during the Lady in the Canary Yellow Jacket? The TV show, yes. Not oh, in the TV Tilda show. Swinton in the film, no. Okay. I think there might be blue in the television show, the uniforms, but I could be wrong. Right, okay. Well, let's get back to Get Out, then. Look, I've got a problem with this movie, Richard. Right now, we've even, we have barely begun. Oh, well, I've got a problem, yeah. There are two black people in this movie. and uh, No, there are lots of black people in this movie. And I, I don't see. Think, too many for you. I don't you, think there are enough get, white people get in the movie. Get out, Paul There are not enough white people. Very unrepresentative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, you know, every other movie has no black people in whatsoever. Fuck me. I'm glad, I'm glad we're covering this sensitive topic. <laughs> <laughs> No, okay, so so it, it is weird, isn't it? Because there are lots of black people in in ser- being servants in a house for 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 people who are avowedly well, hang liberal. On, hang on, we're not there yet, are we? Oh, so oh, this interracial couple, she's inviting him, uh, Daniel, uh, Chris, as he's called in the film, to record for Pornhub. <laughs> well, they'd certainly, they could certainly make a lot of money on the side doing because that, milf cuckold. She is. <laughs> She is inviting ah, him. Uh, I, from your giggle, I know what you search for, Richard. <laughs> Paul, I'm an equal opportunities porn consumer. I'll I'll look at anything. Sorry, go on. Don't, don't mind. Don't mind. I'll, I'll me stop interrupting. My... Okay. 
She's inviting him. It's the moment where the girl invites the guy to go and see her parents. You know, that moment. Yes, that moment. They've got to make a, a road trip to get there, and they set off. He's obviously a bit nervous. He asks her if he's if she has told them that he's black. Um, why, why would she? What, what's wrong with that? What is she with it being? Oh, my parents are perfectly lovely. Why would that even be a thing? They're colorblind. You know, it's 2020. And she tells him that kind of thing. Isn't that right? That's right. She says that her dad is going to tell him that he would have voted for Obama a third time if he was allowed. <laughs> Which, yes, he does say that later on. Yeah. So they drive there and there's a, a slight incident on the way because a deer flies out of the side of the road whilst they're driving along, strikes the car, or gets hit by the car, I suppose, and scutters off into the, the woods just by the, the road, obviously injured. Yeah. And the police show up, don't they? I think, while they're parked. Yeah, I wasn't watching this, but apparently the policeman said something a bit racist, but I missed what it was. I couldn't bother rewinding. What happens, Rich? Rose was driving, uh, but the, and the policeman asks for Chris's ID. Yeah. And at that point, Rose gets very defensive and says, no, he, he wasn't driving, I was driving. Why do you need to see his ID? Uh, fair point, yeah. yeah. And eventually the police policeman relents and lets them on their way. I'll come back to this moment. This is important. Do you think the police only relents because of the power of the white woman there? Or does it, the policeman think he's done something wrong? Or is he just is he just listening to objections from his own kind, so to speak, rather than the objection itself? Come again to the mind of the actor who portrayed that policeman, do you think? I'm not sure about the policeman. He's, after all, only a very small part in the film. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) But I think as as an audience member, you're supposed to be very much on Rose's side at this point because she's stuck up for a man, hasn't she? Yeah, but do you not think at this point... Are you not sensing this point? It's like... It's patronising, though, isn't it? It's a little bit patronising. I mean, he can fight his own battles... Two, sure. you know, I know casual racism leads to institutional racism, you know, and I know, but I don't agree with the idea that, you know, if I stop telling casual racist jokes, people are not going to get shot in 20 years' time. You know, there's a causality that's independent. You know, there's a magical thinking to this kind of this kind of thing. It's, you know, if I don't drink alcohol tonight, there won't be a car crash tomorrow. It, I mean, not really, do you know what I mean? Mm. And so, you know, I mean, he's a grown man. If he thinks this is if this is casual racism of a serious rather than a casual nature of a, a not-too-serious nature. It's his decision to make that, you know. I don't think we need Rose telling him that all racism is very serious and we need to respond to it in the certain sort of way, you know. He's a grown man, fights battles, you know. So already, you know, although you hear, you know, I've got friends who say, you know, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Well, without normalising racism, I think most of us do have a racist bone in our body. I'll be very careful. As, they, as they say, on Avenue Q, everyone's a little, a little bit, bit racist. racist. You know, I mean, that's. I mean, I don't think Avenue Q tries to normalise racism. I think that's a very dangerous thing. You know, I'm not trying to lead us down that path. Where, oh, it's perfectly normal. You know, you know. Oh, yeah. I used to call my friends chalky when I was a kid. I'm not trying to go down that path. What I am saying is, you know, I think when people say that kind of thing, you know, oh, you know, oh I'm completely colourblind. I just don't see race at all. One, they're lying to themselves. But two, isn't that are they not covering something up, perhaps? Rather than the rest of us who say, yeah, you know, I've told a racist joke once in a while. I feel a bit embarrassed about it now, but I have done that. You know, the rest of us who are honest with ourselves. Well, there's the other discussion about unconscious bias, right, isn't there? Which is, firstly, Mm. I think it's obvious, obviously it does happen, and obviously almost everyone must have it Mm. um, to some degree or other. 
But it's an insidious thing to say. It's in- rather insidious to say to people, there's something inside you you can't control that causes you to have prejudices. And you should feel bad about yourself because of it. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, if it is something problem, we can't control, then... Then we, can, we can't feel bad. We, can, we can't feel bad about it, it you know. I mean. It comes back also, though, there's this uh, there's sensitivity and bias training that you can go on, mm-hmm. isn't there? Yeah. And I don't know, I just do not know what the, the evidence is about whether or not you can train people out of unconscious bias. I presume the evidence suggests it's, it's a big waste of money, the, the, the corporate training. Or maybe I'd be listening to it with Jordan Peterson. No, I think I've sort of like The Guardian, actually, or something like that. So it's not, it's not very pro-Jordan sources I've got it from. But I think the idea is, yes, you know, unconscious bias or whatever you want to call it does exist. How do, you, how do people recognise it themselves? Well, they probably can't, can they? The point about being unconscious, isn't it? Hmm. <laughs> I imagine being aware that you can do that is like the start of the battle in that... You know, if you're aware that you are likely to be unconsciously biased on racial grounds, then mm. naturally you stop and think a bit harder, don't you, about those circumstances? But then you get mirrors in mirrors in mirrors. So like you know, you get the, you get like I think Comedy Central and the stuff I see on Facebook from Comedy Central and College Humor, you, you tend to get that double reflection where it, they've got some humor now about about white people being racist because they're tiptoeing around black people. But then again, you know... So it's the, the racism of uh, low expectation, isn't it? It's what you're describing. Like. Well, maybe, but also in terms of tiptoeing, in terms of like, can I use the word black, you know? <laughs> and, and, and using the word like black in situations like blackboard or, or, or blackout, mm. you know, when there's mm. a black person in the room. And also, can I say black or should I be saying African-American? And there is that kind of tiptoeing condescension towards black people but at the same time it's not that clear because people are losing their jobs for saying words like american indian rather than american native american these days hmm. there's, there's a like 90 10 or 80 20 to this where it's it's not crystal clear is it there's 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 a little bit to the other side to all these arguments at the moment i think like like any area in, in social political discourse that's new i think there's going to be a lot of fuzz to this isn't there hmm. the, it's the idea i think there's an idea at the moment is that all that serious racism comes from casual racism. And casual racism is the real enemy. Whereas, you know, lynching people in fields is not the real enemy. Mm. And I don't know what you feel about that. Because to me, that sounds like magical thinking. Uh, no, I think that the problem is casual racism gives uh, an environment of support. Support, to people yes. Who can be but, more extreme. But are we saying that the serious stuff couldn't exist without casual racism? Is anybody suggesting that? Because I think a lot of people are rich, and I think it sounds like magical thinking to my mind. I don't know that it couldn't exist. That's going a long way. But you could certainly say that it might be rarer, and there might be fewer people prepared to, to do it if more people felt it was socially unacceptable. So next question is, therefore, casual racism is just as serious as serious racism. No, it's not just as ah, serious. Ah, okay. I, I well, then you're saying, but I don't, I'm not hearing a lot of voices like yours at the moment, you see. Hmm. Because I think like it is, it, it's quite new ground talking about race so explicitly, and so I think it's it, it's smudging, it's fudging. It won't be in a couple of years' time. I think there's a process to all this. I think it will find its track eventually. But anyway, sorry, where were we? Oh yeah, well, I was saying. Rose interrupted your synopsis. Are in Alabama, which, as we know now, is alphabetically the, the first state in the U.S. Oh, it is. Unlike Wyoming, which is the last state alphabetically. Yeah, I got Wyoming. 
because I, I, I think our, our, our good friend Alistair, hi Alistair, uh, who's, who's guested recently, he was asking this question, you know, what are the 50 states of America? And I got Wyoming, and lots of people didn't. It's a tricky one. Tricky I was going to go for Wichita, and I realized that Wichita wasn't the state. But there is another one with W, as part from Washington. Wisconsin. 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 And that's what most people were going for at the end. And I thought, no, there's a Wyoming, too. So, so yeah, so they're in Sweet Home Alabama, and they're approaching Mummy and Daddy's house, and there's a car no, crash, and they kill a Alabama deer. is not the biggest state in the U.S. Which is the biggest state? Texas. What do people think is Texas? Alaska. It is Alaska, yes. I know, probably, last time you checked, Paul, it was probably still owned by Russia, wasn't it? You say my opinions are outdated, Richard. <laughs> when did when did Russia sell Alaska to America? Eighteen ninety eight. I wasn't around. I don't remember the date. You're saying I'm a vampire. <laughs> What's your subtext here, Richard? I don't. I don't think you've ever refereed a cricket match. No. What's that going to do with it? <laughs> But anyway, so so she isn't racist, and her family aren't racist at all. They never have been. But never they do be. have black servants, as <laughs> they, they discover when he drives up. Servants, yeah. Got a, a gardener. Yeah, like, I've got a gardener. real problem with the representation of this movie. It's just too many black people. <laughs> yeah, he has be. a he has a problem too. He says, "You're like he's like God." Like, it's all these black servants. And the dad's like, yeah, I know how it looks, but I promise you we're really nice to them and they get holidays. So it all looks nice and liberal, doesn't it? I was going to say, you, you said there's too many black people. Considering this is a film by a black director who is acutely aware of oh. racial issues, and this film is all about <sighs> racial issues, he's only managed to squeeze, I think, five black people in the entire film. There's way more white people in this film. There are way more white people, yeah. <laughs> no, no. I was trying to make an ironic counterpoint, Richard. Now, obviously, um, his family's very nice. They are lovely. So at this point, Richard, are you suspecting there's anything a bit crooked with them? Because I wasn't. I was convinced, you know, when his dad gave the shonky, you know, but we do, we do give them holidays and we treat them really well. I was convinced that they were just slightly hypocritical, well-meaning liberals who aren't very racist at all, you know. Who, and if they are, they try to change themselves with lots of denial. Doesn't he say something about them being in the employ of his parents and, or he kept them on when his parents yes. died? Yeah. And of course, that's a subtle clue to what's going on later. But at the time, you know, you might, you might read that as being like, sort of extending some uh, compassion to them and keeping them on. But... His mother is a psychotherapist, I think. Sorry, her mother, Rose's mother, is a psychotherapist. Yeah, I already she, like she's come. I, I, the actress here, actor, actress, I, really powerful. I thought she really got that kind of. I'm a psychotherapist who's really gonna fuck with your mind. It's great. She's Catherine, I love Catherine it. Keener is the actor. Oh well, a really good job. And Missy, Missy. Is I, the name I found her to be when it gets scary. I found her to be the scariest character. Really, she's very sinister. Yeah, yeah. really sinister. Like just so sinister. It's done really well and really simply. She just all she has to do is do her her Darren Brown thing. She just has to you know make a scraping sound with the like spoon. A, yeah, spoon on the inside of the teacup, which it really is quite a, nails on whiteboards, nails on blackboard sound. And she can just put people under her hypnotic spell. It sounds corny to describe, but it is actually really powerful when you see it. Sorry, yes, yeah, but- yeah. And she, well, she set up a post-hypnotic suggestion to entrance her subjects using that spoon. Yeah. Her dad, Rose's dad, Dean, is some kind of doctor, a medical doctor. Yes. And her brother, surgeon, we- a surgeon, a surgeon, surgeon. Yeah. 
Her brother, who we don't see until later, I think he's a student, a medical student. Now, the brother, this was 2018. Billy from Stranger Things, who's the older brother of the the skateboarding redhead girl. I I just felt a real affinity between these two characters on screen. I don't know if you did. They're not on the same screen, though. You mean two? No, these two screen yeah. characters. I, I just yes, felt I they're, they're allied. They feel allied, yes. Yeah. Things progress in the normal, awkward meeting the family of the girlfriend kind of a way, don't they? They have dinner. Her brother turns up. Yeah, so up. they have family dinner one night, then they have like the garden party with the neighbours next The night, next right? day is a party, yep, yeah, that's right. And mm-hmm. all of the neighbours come around. So, standard fare. Chris meets the local sort of residents of the community. Oh, his dad told him something really significant, didn't he? He said that his his father, uh, Rose's grandfather, in other words, had been uh, an athlete, and he'd been hoping to go to the Olympics. I guess the <sighs> the wartime one where Jesse Owens was it who won the the sprint in front of Adolf in front of Hitler, yeah. but he didn't go because he'd Jesse been beaten beat him by too. Jesse Owens, yeah, setting up a bit of racial tension conflict here. We think in the in the family. Whilst they're meeting all of the people in the garden party, they meet a couple where there's a middle-aged elderly white woman with a much younger black guy as her partner. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is, is the black guy speaks, or seems to be speaking like a white guy. Is that a racist Racist. thing to say? Yeah, well, it is. I think it's acceptably racist. Thing it's to just stereotype, yes. isn't it? He, he, he doesn't Cameron, employ yeah. he doesn't employ any ebonics whatsoever in his speech. No, but it's not just his speech, is it? It's his, his mannerisms, his mannerisms, everything. It's a really his flannel, good, uh, his flannel jungle jungle uh, jacket, like his yeah, colo- and his colonialist jacket, I think, and his straw boater, straw boater. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, even for a white guy, he would look old fashioned and out of place at that party. So had you, did you have any clue about the film at this point, Paul? Because this is a big clue, really, to what's going on. I think it was after the, the first night where the sun is down and Chris is in the garden trying to call his buddy back home in the city who doesn't like any of this. Like, he's got a fat mate who's black also. He's like, you're, just, you know, you're going to be inducting some weird whitey sex ring. Be careful out there. And uh, suddenly one of the black servants comes pushing past him, running past him, sprinting past him at speed in the garden. Oh, well, it doesn't go past. It comes right toward him, right? Yeah. This is is the classic scene that gets repeated and people have been parodying it. It, it, He goes out, doesn't he? Does he go out to smoke? I don't know. But he's standing outside. And yeah, the gardener runs toward him really, really, really quickly and just dodges out of the way at the last moment. Yeah. Often parodied, as I say, I think people... So, yeah, so I think at that point, I thought, oh, gosh, right, this is where it's going to go. And I had a sense that... Did you click? Did you click uh, the supernatural or something? No, No, I didn't click grandfather was an athlete and this gardener guy is an athlete kind of thing. That didn't really happen for me. Hmm. Okay. Did it for you, Richard? Not the first time, no, but this was the second time I've watched Get Out. Ah. A lot of things made much more sense to me on second viewing. So anyway, so yeah, so so there's a middle-aged white woman with with a younger and attractive black boyfriend, and I have to say he is more attractive in classical t- in, in, in in any in any in any from any perspective than than Daniel who plays the lead, isn't he? Really? Well, you were saying this, Paul. You're not a fan of Daniel, who you know 
he... Well, I've got a prominent forehead too. So I see. I see. And you don't find that an att- attractive quality. No. 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 Okay. Daniel appeared in a Black Mirror episode. And I think that's interesting because... He was! He was on the treadmill. I remember. Yeah, 50 million merits. Yep. I think it's interesting because I think this film is quite like a Black Mirror episode. It It, is, yeah. It's like a Twilight Zone. And I've got a feeling that Jordan Peele is now in charge of Twilight 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 Zone. Zone. It is like Twilight Zone. I think Jordan Peele is now the guy in charge of Twilight Zone. It's also a little bit like Tales of the Unexpected by Roald Dahl. Yes, yeah. Yes. And these are all. Uh, these are not criticisms. I don't think these no. are plus points in the favour of it. Yeah. Now I think. Yeah. Now I think. Like very like Twilight Zone, but more like Tells the Unexpected. Like there's a slow burn. Yes. On the on the thrill here, and I, it made it quite enjoyable. But anyway, yeah. So he's he's. I wouldn't say he's a classically. Uh, he was quite handsome in Black Mirror, though, wasn't he, Daniel? I think it's just how the director shot him in this movie. But anyway, to get back to the other, to to get back to the Uncle Tom, I guess you know the young guy who's at this point you're thinking, well, is she dating him because he's young, or is he dating her because she's got money? Uh, no, that as it transpires. But I wanted to get onto the idea that you know he was dressed up in the clothes of the oppressor, if you like, you know. And to think back, you know, because it's something that maybe like you go to, you go to some African countries like Central Africa and people will spend, young guys will spend $2,000, $3,000 on French shoes or French suits, you know, and French walking canes. <laughs> and and they'll spend all their money and, the, you know, they'll live in just very ordinary circumstances for that country. And they'll, they'll go on like a, a walk every other weekend, you know, they'll like it's like you know people drive turn it with their with their show cars or their their souped up cars or their, or their tricked out cars in this country. They're peacocking. Uh, they'll peacock, yeah. They'll peacock in these peacock events. And as the you know, it's, I was thinking, you know, is this something particular to the black experience and being dispossessed of your homeland or being dispossessed of your freedom in, in the United States or whatever? And but then I was thinking, like, to football. You think about association football. You you these days, you know, like. Sorry, you mean soccer? Soccer, yeah, association football to distinguish it from rugby football. But you know, these days, you know, if we saw a man with a top hat walking down the street, <laughs> I mean, we we wouldn't offer them any kind of respect. Although I think top hats do look really good; They're, they are objectively really, really attractive. But at the same time, you know, uh, with football flannels and football kits, we find perfectly acceptable. But if you think about it, I mean. Uh. We, we say the roots of association football are working class, but in fact, they're not. I mean, it simply is poor people aping the rich. Okay. When, you know, that's, that's what, you know, that's how it all started out. It was just like those guys in Africa now put on the, you know, the, the walking cane and put on the expensive French clothes. That's huh. how football started off in mill towns in the UK. I just wanted to say that. In my, from my opinion, that's that's how it all started off, you know. And but now we see it as being very much, you know, the, the clothing and the attitudes that were amateur for quite some time. But the idea, of, you know, the fair play and all that kind of stuff as, as being working class attitudes. But in fact, they're not really, are they? They're, they're wholly imported mm. aping yeah. of of of, uh, of a of a super straight class, aren't they? That's got nothing to do with the movie. I'm sorry. It's got nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> Events in the movie move really quickly. At- from here, don't they? Yes. The, and I'm not actually clear on the order anymore. But Will, doesn't he does, get hypnotised the, the first night in? 
Yeah, I think he does. He gets hypnotised the first night and he stays up late, doesn't he? Mum makes him cry. What does she make him cry about? Oh, the fact he's an abandoned baby. His dad didn't want him. His mum died horribly. Chris gets the heebie-jeebies, I think, after the garden party. and He says he wants to go home. Rose persuades him that he should stay. I read somewhere that Daniel felt that that was the most difficult and unrealistic bit to act. He didn't understand why Chris would have stayed at that point. And Jordan Peele yeah. said to him, what you've got to imagine is this guy's lost his family. I just, you know, he feels abandoned by his family. And this is the first time he's felt that fam- you know, family kind of love at all. So even though he might feel uncomfortable, you know, he's going to stick with it for Rose because he understands the importance of it. And that persuaded Daniel to do that scene. But you remember the scene, uh, the, I think, looking out over the lake and uh, they have a chat about him going home. I think she persuades him to stay, but ultimately he decides he's got to go. Well, what makes him want to go? I mean, at the garden party, we've got, like, the couple, you know, the young, the young black guy with the older white woman. And I think he phones his friend Chris and says, I know this guy from somewhere. Yeah, that's right. Because he's um, actually the guy who was abducted in the opening scene ah, and so I think they must have known him or known about his disappearance yes Chris knew him so he's he's saying that he's completely changed his mannerisms and, and his personality seems to have changed and he didn't recognise him now the reason he wants to leave is because the mother keeps putting him in the hole so to speak like she keeps putting yes. him under yeah and what she's right. done is she's she's made him reflect back and imagine the sounds of the rain during his mother's death car crash and then she's associated this sound with the sound of a teacup and with this she can put him under to a, a, the underworld or the under the understate she has a term for it anyway he winds up anyway tied to a chair in a basement room yeah how they uh, hypnotized him there's some drugs as well so at some point there's a, a syringe full of some kind of anesthetics and that <laughs> but he comes to in this room with a television in front of him and the TV explains what's going to happen to him. Oh, that's right, yeah. And the idea is that uh, Rose's father is going to do a brain transplant and the garden party was actually an auction during which the elderly sort of white people are bidding for the rights to have their mind tran- transplanted into Chris's body. So he wakes up Tied to the chair. Was this before he tried to leave? Well, he discovers photos of all the other black people. No, it was after he tried to leave. After he tried to leave. That's right, yes. He discovers, uh, uh, he looks at Rose's stuff. Yeah, that's right. And he sees all of her previous black boyfriends, doesn't she? Doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And a black girlfriend, he would say. That's right. And a a black girlfriend, yeah. Who, I think, is the, the maid, isn't she? Yeah. And then he finds himself tied up after that. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it transpires they're going to cut his cut his skull off and put somebody else's brain in his body. That's right. Yeah. It's a and brain. The white guy will be it? the driving seat, and he'll still be there in a certain sort of way, but but he won't slave. be able to control it. Yeah. Yeah. As an observing a slave, yeah. a slave and observing, you know, somebody else telling him what to do with his body. A living hell is what we're describing, isn't it? So, no, but anyway, Richard, they uh, they cut people's heads off, uh, skulls out, and plop a new brain in there, don't they? And that's what he's tied up to do. That's right. And her brother is assisting. And we learn, of course, through those photographs that Rose has done this many, many times before. 
her job is to go out into the world, seduce black men and women, uh, bring them back to the family home where Papa is going to cut their heads open and transplant old white men's brains into them. And as Chris is about to undergo this and the photos laid strewn on the floor, uh, we see her pouring herself a glass of milk. And I thought this was the scariest moment in the movie. It was just so sinister. Uh, it was also proper and neat and tidy and drinking healthy glasses of milk. And yeah, you know, they were just, they were just, just these monsters of people. I mean, the last bits of the film are his daring escape. And his buddy turns up, finally. Uh, his buddy's in the TSA, isn't he? He's a, yes. a search agent at the airport. And he turns up in his uh, car flashing his TSA badge or whatever. It's, it's funny. It's it's good ending. They get the comeuppance, don't they? The, the, the family, Rose and her family. They all I think they all get their just desserts. We've spoken before about the closeness of comedy and horror. And here you've got... a comedy guy doing a horror and I think it's got all the same comedy beats you know and ultimately it's kind of like a it's kind of like the culmination of a comedy sketch you know when the TSA guy (laughs) who's been hunting his buddy down to help him shows up and saves the day and stuff did you find this funny or creepy or was it meant to be a comedy no I just think there's really a close relationship between comedy and horror no there is there is yeah there is a real close I I just never really I I didn't see I I didn't see those comic elements at all I I was just thoroughly disturbed by this movie like you were expecting Midsummer to be to disturb it it didn't do I I found it deeply comic (laughs) this I don't think you're expecting to disturb it when it was suggested I don't know who suggested this you're Alistair but it, it, it did disturb me I was really disturbed by this movie well it is proper existential body horror isn't it to the idea of being I think maybe I was disturbed by the lightness of the treatment like you know <laughs> they're essentially you know <laughs> proposing this ethnocentric and uh, not just fascist state but deep secretive oh just uh, a very sophisticated deep secrets ethnocentric fascist state of extermination and extreme exploitation but that's so sophisticated you would never know it exists and that to me is a really really disturbing concept well i think it's how a lot of people see the how the world is mm-hmm. but the point is i i'm not speaking to the world could be like that but how would you ever you know how could you ever demonstrate this i mean this kind of sophistication doesn't open itself up for empirical measurement does it well we're talking about things that are hidden you know that people yeah. hide no question Listen, I think we'd better do the scores. I think we're there. We're at the end of the film. Mm. Paul, how would you like to score Get Out? Well, let's start then with acting. Yeah, really good. I, I thought our hero led led quite well. I, there was no point where he wasn't convincing. And there was no point where you didn't think you know his portrayal on screen was, was, wasn't how you react in the situation. And, and he, you really got that sense that we were discovering it along with him. So... Yeah, I think he carried it really well. Great, scary psychiatrist. Well, I've got to say here, Alison, who played Rose, I think she does an amazing job because I think early on you, you're with her and you're rooting for her. Yeah. It does and turn on the sixpence, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. She's playing a character who's obviously very skilled at manipulating the people that she's seducing. And she seduces the audience and you feel like yes. you, know, you want the couple to work. You do. You, yeah. you want them. You think they're good together and it's going to work out. And she's nice and she's uh, trying. She might be a bit clumsy about her attempts to be understanding. but Yes. But that's the key thing. I wanted to go back to this. The bit, um, again, I only really clicked on this when I saw it again. When the policeman stops them 
and she convinces the policeman not to take Chris's ID. She's just trying to avoid a paper trail so that if Chris disappears, the police don't have his ID on file. Uh-huh. Says So she wasn't even so she's being protective. She's cunning. 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 Oh, wow. So for that reason, my acting score is going to be a nine for this film. Yeah, Rose is brilliant, like you say. Really got that homely, milk-drinking, nice (laughs) girl who's actually really scary. And and the way it's revealed is is brilliant. So yeah, I'm going to go a nine on this too. How about special effects and action? Yeah, it ended really well. Built to a crescendo, quite effectively, I think. That's important, the lack of action in the first half of the movie. We had some nice... Grabbing of fireside implements, kind of smashing, <laughs> and you know, fight through the expensive country house kind of thing uh, with some mashed brains. But it's not particularly gory. No, it's not. not. I think it works like that. It, yeah. it isn't trying to be gore horror, is it? No. no. And then we had like the zombie chase at the end where people are wounded and other people are wounded, and it's a slow chase, which is always nice for tension build. So a seven, I think. What about you, Rich? What do you think? Yeah, you can't give it too high a score because there wasn't that much going on, but nothing stood out as unrealistic. So I'll get, I'll go eight. I'll go a bit higher, but good, no. good stuff. So how about uh, uh, script and plot? Yeah, the plot's great. I think it was very nicely boiled. It was on simmer for quite some time, and then they turn it up for a nice big boil at the end. And Do you think it's too slow at the beginning? Some people. No, I think that think makes it that simmer helps it's it. You good. Know. Yeah. When the sauce reduces down at the end, it comes out quite <laughs> nice and rich. So, eight, I think, or 8.5 even. Yeah, I'll certainly give this an eight without much thought. Yeah, I, I, as you say, I think it's pitched really well. So, the mysterious category that relates to fear that we don't really know the name for, but I like to call fear factor. Oh, jump factor, yeah. <laughs> jump factor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are three or four times where she, you know, she puts that teaspoon in the cup. And sends him under, and you really, you know, you really feel for his lack of control and the way. That, oh gosh, yeah, and therefore the house, this country house, suddenly becomes very claustrophobic and confining, and all that. And there's a pressing sense of inevitability that it's all going to go wrong. Then, you know, when the major crux is revealed, it's still pretty scary. So yeah, eight point five again for that. There's nothing supernatural about the horror here. No, other than that, it may be a bit far fetched what they're doing medically. But it's not supernatural. No, but... it's it's creepy. Certainly, it, it as you say, it's like tales on the unexpected. It's like a Black Mirror episode in some ways. Perhaps most importantly, this is a political film. It's really about racism. It's an analysis of racism, isn't it? Yeah. For me, the scariness, I think, like you, like you were describing, is is that it's real in a way. It it's actually how. People of colour and people not white see the world. feel about about mm. how the world is. The white That's world, yeah. Disturbing. It's disturbing because it's true. It's more true than any other horror I can imagine. So in that sense, you know, I've I've got to give it a nine. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it is a nice sort of. Uh, it's a metaphor of. It's a straightforward you know, metaphor yeah. about about you know how racist society works. But like I say, it's all quite new how we started speaking about race so explicitly. You know, with the. Black Lives Matter protests. and So, you know, these five ideas of hidden curriculum, endemic or institutional racism, implicit bias, unconscious bias, you know, these five terms that have started, I'm not going to say banded about because they're relevant, but they've come into our, our, our common vernacular. And so I think at this juncture is quite useful to have a movie like this because, you know, those are quite big ideas and 
by their nature, you know, hidden racism isn't necessarily visible, is it, or measurable. So, so I think it's useful to have a movie like this at this time. Yeah. The insidious thing about the way that the racism is portrayed is that Chris arrives and people are kind of all over him, you know? Yeah. They're, oh, you know, nice muscles, isn't he lovely kind of thing. Her parents are all welcoming and um, warm. But, of course, they only want him for his for his body. And even the reference to the Olympics and Jesse Owens, you know, is, is yes. in a sense, you know, that's all they're good for. You know, they can run fast. But their their personhood, you know, their identity is thrown away in this whole yeah. horrific process. And that's... Uh, successfully otherised, yeah. 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 Objectified, objectified. Objectified and otherised, yeah, at the same time. Yeah. Which leads us to an overall score for what I think is another important movie. A nine. I like this one. It's very good. Yeah, I, I would fully agree a nine. I think this is, uh, not only is it important, I think it's also a good movie that I, I wouldn't hesitate to rewatch. <laughs> Let's decide on a movie for next week, Paul. It's oh, your turn. It is. Suggest. And uh, I've got something that's billed as sci fi. Oh. I don't know if it is sci fi. And this is called Nothing Really Happens. Now, you're suggesting this because Alistair, who's not with us this week, Alistair suggested, suggested this movie and we rejected it. But since he's not here, uh, we're going to do it. Uh, Just a disappointing annoying as it were. <laughs> Right. So, nothing really happens. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It is. It's time for the music. It is. In three, two, and one. one. 